Hi, I'm Siggy, born and raised in St. Catharines, Ontario, and now living in the nation's capital of Ottawa. And I'm Jesse, born in Manila, Philippines, raised in Toronto, Canada, and schooled all over southwestern Ontario. You're listening to the Halo Halo podcast, a delicious mix of pop culture and the Filipino-Canadian life. Before we start our podcast, we'd like to acknowledge the lands we're podcasting on. I'm podcasting from the homeland of the Lenape Hoking, who were violently displaced as a result of European settler colonialism over the course of 400 years. The Lenape are a diasporic people that remain closely connected with this land and are its rightful stewards. I also recognize that New York City has one of the largest urban Native American Indigenous populations in the United States. And I'm podcasting from the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin and Nishibeg people. For further information regarding Indigenous culture, I definitely recommend to go to Instagram and follow Ontario Canada Project. It bridges information gaps to invite more Canadians to critical conversations about Canada and the world. And this includes cultural and history about the Indigenous culture and our settlers' guide to truth and reconciliation. Sigs. Oh my god. Hi. Hello. It's season six. And season six. I know it's kind of hard to believe. And we were saying this at the end of season five as we kind of go <laughs> into season six. And you'll recall in our planning back in August, and now it's October for us. I know. Yeah, I know. It it just kind of goes really quickly. And yet at the same time, I miss you because it's like, oh my God, I haven't talked to Sigs in like months now. A couple of weeks. Yeah, total months. Yeah. Cause it was like the like August where we saw each other and we had a we had a Filipino showdown <laughs> of we, we went. Did. We went to Seafood City, folks, and he took me to Jollibee. And oh it was just, it was literally Jesse trying to like ferry me through stuff and hold my cart saying, Oh my God, look at this. Oh my as God, I had look to at this. Close your oh my mouth, God. You know, <laughs> like, as you were gobsmacked and jaw dropped, you know. And you being an experience. advocate for my wife while we were staying in a hotel, you're like, You do not have a freezer. You cannot yeah. bring You're, you're not going to bring that home. <laughs> you, you, how are you going to bring that home? But I do want to know yes. how did the Ube pancakes? mix i have the out. box i have not cracked it open like oh my gosh but i'm gonna tell you something the puto yes. i bought mm-hmm. was delicious mm. the cheesecake brownies was delicious like oh. it just hit the spot i really had a great time in that seafood city i had some good chicken joy oh I yes loved it. we I took had a great time to I... <laughs> jolly bee listeners was this great. was his first time it was incredible right it was great and i think there's a need i like the way that seafood city is structured it's mm-hmm. clean it's organized and like we went on a thursday afternoon at around between three and five and right kuya just told me like siggy this is not normally this quiet like it, there's no way it was like, so it would quiet. be like this. It was so weird. You're it like, was so this quiet. is an off season. It's never like this. I was so impressed. Like literally every down every aisle. Oh my god, Banos. Oh my god, this. Oh my god, this. The best is just like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. We good. Are we down this? Are we good? Yeah. You're good. <laughs> just a reminder, you don't have a cooler. You are in a hotel you for the can't week bring with any your of that wife. stuff. You cannot That's bring right. all at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a feeling you it. and Emily are probably gonna end up investing in some type of like car charger cooler or something like I that. I think so. The yeah. next time we go, but it was definitely Seafood City, come closer. Hey, I'm not a TNT hater, but Seafood City had a, it was There was just a beyond. sense of uniqueness that was, and it truly catered to the Filipino in the diaspora. And I think we can all, anyone that listens to this podcast can probably appreciate that. And at some point, maybe we have to do an episode on a live Seafood taste City. test like yeah. we did, like we did with <laughs> yeah. Marianda track that yeah. will just be in the, we'll just be in the parking lot going, I'm so hungry. This is so good. But anyway, yeah, as, as we talk um, about it, but to kick <laughs> off season six yes. and to honor what we're calling for the month of October, 
Hollywood Labor Movement Month, we're dedicating our main episodes to all things labor and working class. So for our listeners that are out there, we're taping this on an afternoon, which is a little bit different for us just because of my travel schedule. As of October 2nd, we know that a tentative deal has been struck between the Writers Guild Association and the AMTP, and we're waiting for it to be ratified by its members. And most news out there is anticipating ratification, although lots of pundits are saying, you know, the writers could still vote this down, which is always a possibility, right? They may like, the union leaders might indeed like what's been put out there, but if the writers don't, Mm -hmm. it could be a different story. But people seem to be anticipating that. So most news out there is, again, anticipating ratification while the details of the contract is being wrapped up. And I think for anyone that doesn't know about how unions work, this is very typical part of the process that even though the bargaining team has gotten something sizable or they feel is sizable, they can present this to the membership. You know, and I guess people are hoping that maybe perhaps this meets the needs of the members. And of course, it starts hitting the rubber, as they proverbially would say, hits the road when you get the contract. So I think people are waiting for those details. Sigs, I don't know if, if you have anything else to say on that or what else you know about the strike. between. Uh, the- not about those further details. I love that we're having a focus on it, but I we were watching it like from the beginning. And when we were planning, we talk about pop culture, we talk about movies, we talk about television. And, and Jez is like, hey, wait a minute it's going to influence how we roll out. And I mean, Mm -hmm. there's pop culture for days, as we say, but I'm like, oh, this is going to affect things, whether it's the Emmys, the Oscars, movie deals, how movies come out, and the generation of pop culture that we enjoy and that we love talking about with you guys on our show. So it's so interesting that the WGA was on strike and then Mm -hmm. eventually was joined by SAG-AFTRA. Right. Powerful. I I just thought that, like, at the same time, I'm like, wow, this is... A big movement to me or whatever it looks natural because many of the actors do write they do produce they're linked i am surprised that i'm glad i'm happy for the writers guild like you really saw their negotiation team i think this just hits a little bit close to home because i was part of a strike in Mm -hmm. april Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. just to see this evolve and see how long it's taking theirs is much longer than what we and people endured in ottawa and across the nation across canada this april um, in the public service, if WGA is on strike and they just said they'll do, SAG is still on strike. So that's I think right. That may affect what we expect with the actors and what's going to be turned out, right? Yeah. For those of our listeners that don't know, that's usually called pattern or coordinated bargaining, which is just mm-hmm. a fancy way of saying that if the Writers Guild and the members of the Writers Guild are happy and got, let's say, I'm just not saying that any of that's true, but let's say they got this benefit, right? Well, Mm -hmm. that gives SAG the right to ask for the same benefit, saying, well, the writers got it, why can't the actors get it? And what I also just want to remind our listeners, too, is just in case this agreement does indeed get ratified, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to start seeing pop culture stuff down the road, you know, really quickly. Because we still have to see the screen actors come to a resolution, and that could take a bit of time. So... I don't know that we'll see any new content SIGs until probably promotion of new content, at least until yeah, exactly. the spring, as far as I'm concerned. Like they still have stuff in the pipeline, but mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I've noticed them slowing down the pipeline because they're they just have to kind of create some excitement for whatever is being released they can't all release it all at once or else they're not going to have anything to provide the audiences out there for streaming or otherwise right so and then you see other winners right kuya in this Mm -hmm. this stage so you have taylor and our girl beyonce saying hey okay i'm a musician guess what i can do a concert movie 
and I can promote the heck out of it, and people are dying to go. Well, aside right. from the fact we can't afford tickets, but we can afford tickets to a movie, I'm going to bring it out. And I was like, ooh, that's sort of smart. So, you know, there's it's different filling ways a void, right? Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say. Yeah. It's filling a void. That but I have want, to right? say, maybe fans out there of Taylor might not be happy with me saying that. I think you should have solidarity. That feels like a bit of union breaking as far as I'm concerned. It, and it, anyways, I'm putting it out there. If people are going to okay. come for us, they come the for Instagram, us. They come for us. Yeah, but I just us. have it's to say, good. I don't know. I don't know if I feel okay about that. In fact, I would probably say no. I think, I mean, our listeners are probably finding out that we have much more of a sophisticated idea and handle on the labor movement and working class. And I think we're in a very interesting time of seeing a rise of labor kind of come to the forefront again. And I think that that's actually a good thing because I think for the most part, we saw them in the 80s and before that in the 60s. And and really at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution is really where the labor movement all began. And I think, you know, just like anything else, that too has also been captured in pop culture. And I thought that, and I'm glad that you agreed to this for this month, that we would be looking Mm -hmm. at this idea of working class and union movies and stuff like that. And when you think about some of the movies out there that address these issues of working class and union movies, you don't necessarily think about it, but it it's in the backdrop and mm-hmm. there's so many of them, right? Like from Newsies, like, and I'm always reminded like that <laughs> is where the start of the industrial revolution had occurred. And because the industrial revolution had terrible conditions for workers, things like Newsies kind of documents that in a musical format, courtesy Disney, but also like <laughs> recently, sorry to bother you. I think if you've ever seen that Norma Ray. And yes. I think also Roger and Me, like the documentary of Full Monty. Full Monty, yes. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and like when you actually think about it, there's actually a lot of movies out there in terms of, again, working class issues and union movies. What what kind of kind of comes up for mind for you, Sigs, when you When we were talking about this in Brainstorming in the Summer, you had listed some, and I said, I remember watching Norma Ray when I was little. Mm. And I grew up with a father that worked for General Motors, right, and my mom right. worked as a nurse. Mm-hmm. So ONA, the Ontario Nurses Association, and my mm-hmm. dad was United Auto Workers. I, I yes. apologize if I can't UAW, remember. UAW, yeah, that's UAW. right. UAW. I understood what that was. And when we watched this movie, and this is like... I don't know how old I was, seven or eight-year-old me were watching this movie, and there was such a grittiness to Sally Field. I know she was upset, and she held up this sign, and I'm mm-hmm. telling our listeners who aren't familiar, and it says union on it, and it was an action. And I remember being little, and I remember Willie and Susie do my parents. I go, that seems important. And my parents just said, it is important. And mm-hmm. I, they're trying to explain to me at a kid level, they're like, she wants to make sure that everyone has rights and that they're protected at work. Right. That's what we are doing. And yes. you know what, Siggy, your dad helps create cars. There's a transformation movement. And there's a lot of people employed by General Motors and St. Catharines. And my mom's like, we're responsible for taking care of people. We need to be protected that make sure that we can do our job and that our rights are protected. And I remember them instilling that in me. And it's so poignant right now. Like a lot of the things that you said, Kuya, WGA and SAG after and them working together mm-hmm. as a, like a group and platform is what I just observed with the public service just this past April. Just recently. You know, yeah. in the yeah. largest bargaining units coming together with another large bargaining unit and having to strike. And when I was out there on the field, and I'll, I'll talk very broadly, 
I wasn't just marching for my brothers. I was marching, marching for my parents. I know I'm privileged mm-hmm. and I, mm-hmm. I have a good job and I was out there. But the other people out there, when people say solidarity, I sort of understood. It's not perfect. I know that. I know that we do have some listeners that work for the public service. It wasn't easy for many people. But when I was out there and I... I did my shifts out there and I simply walked back and forth. I held a sign. I made sure I signed in or I, I spoke to people. And I know that there's some like shift leaders there that I know. And we were out there just being there for each other. There was an importance of it. And when people honked or I had a friend that was traveling from out east. She had some free time. She was in on business and she went and walked with me for the day. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's solidarity. And she was right. from a different, she was from an agency I previously worked at, but she took her time. She's like, I'm going to walk with you, Sigs. Like, I'm like, thank you. Amazing. I'll say her name, Marjorie. I love you. Thank you so much for coming Amazing. out. I just, yeah. It was important because I heard other people, okay, I'm not making money today. What will I do on top of just the strike pay that I'll get for walking? I People were affected and it was crazy to see. And I, I didn't realize that this is big. This is a big thing that happened. And Huge. I yeah. remember you texting me. You're like, if I was closer, I'd come bring you lunch. And of course, you know, I'd we bring just donuts go, or coffee. You know, or... And you just go there. And it was the job. And it's, you say the industrial revolution, things are happening right now. I don't think people realize we are on the tip of a new industrial revolution when it comes to AI. So work is changing in bigger things. It's crazy. Well, and then what we know is that the employer will use that to their advantage and possibly exploit workers at the end of the day. And I think that's why we're seeing a bit of worker unrest. Mm -hmm. Suddenly people are finding the relevance of unions yet again. And I think that's that's important to kind of recognize and seeing the WGA finally take a not finally take a stand, but rather, you know, realize that they had to take a stand on this important issue of their livelihood and how the conditions have changed so that, you know, mm-hmm. writers had to live in their camper vans or writers had to have a second job oh. delivering well, food. Well, they're on big shows. Like one of the writers of The Bear, a show that's amazing that everyone talks about, mm-hmm. one of the writers is working a second job right now. Right. Because he couldn't sustain. And the, how many people are watching on Disney Plus? Right. Not like a handful, tons of people. Tons of people, you know, and yet we're hearing the AMTMP. And of course, we're not part of these negotiations. No, exactly not. Yeah. (laughs) But I have to say that I think to myself, wow, like, is it that much obligation you have to your shareholders? What about the viewers? And what about the people that are working for you? They're pouring their heart and soul and their emotion into these stories, right? Like at, at the end of the day. But all of this is just kind of like made me remember and the importance, as you said, the union and the union movement. And I think absolutely mm-hmm. one of my most favorite movies about the unions and the union movement is Pride. And I remember telling you about this as mm-hmm. we were planning for this episode. And for those of you that don't know, Pride is a story of how a small lesbian and gay activist group supports the struggling minors of a very small Welsh town in the 1980s. And what's fantastic about this is, is that it was the harebrained idea of one of the lesbian and gay activists that said, you know, you know who else is being bullied? The minors are being bullied. We yes. should raise my money for them. And at first you just think it's, you know, it's a stunt. Like it's a stunt mm-hmm. as they walk through the parade. But as they get their money, you know, and then they need to give it. And of course, the miners union was like you know, don't bother. Right. But they still Mm -hmm. went forward. And what they ended up doing was kind of partnering up with this small Welsh town that really needed the support. And I just absolutely love it because I think for me, like I walked away with 
two messages. One was, you can always find a friend in a fight when the foe and you are both responding to the same pressures that you're both facing and stuff like that. So I wouldn't underestimate that kind of like what Siggy has already been talking about listeners, this idea of like people joining the strike movement or people joining the labor movement saying that I can empathize with you. And even though you might be striking against your employer and you're not getting paid, I'm going to walk and be in solidarity with you. And so finding that friend in that fight, you know, with the foe and realizing mm-hmm. that that foe is a common foe was a resounding message of this film. The second message that I took away from all of this is, is that when you do find a friend in the fight, you know, you end up sticking up for them and you realize that the injustice that they face is the same injustice you face. And it just reminds me of this union mantra of an injury to one is an injury to all, you know? And I think we saw that at least here in Ontario with the education workers going on strike. Mm -hmm. How incredible was that, that people were so riled up in terms of that, that you saw the government end up having to come back to the bargaining table and do the right thing, even reluctantly. So they had to do the right thing because the public soon realized that. And I think you see that message loud and clear in this particular movie as well. I got you to see it, right? And uh, I wanted to hear your thoughts on it. Hey, I'd never heard of this movie. And I remember just, there's this movie called Pride. I'm like, okay, I had no clue. And it, and all you said was, it's about minors. And I'm like, okay. And I had no clue. And this weekend I was sort of by myself. So I was like, oh, I better get this movie out. And then it says Pride. I couldn't stream. I had to stream it and buy it. I rented it for $2.99. Mm-hmm. I would buy it. This movie set in 1984, 1985. Now, listen, it's an ensemble flick. Now, if you look, you can see everybody. There's it's Andrew every- Scott, Hot yeah. Priest from Fleabag, Dominic yeah. West, yep, Bill yep. Nighy, and Imelda Staunton, who was mm. wonderful. Now, Imelda Staunton, I mean, forever ingrained as a villainous role from Harry Potter. Of course. But here, she won me over. Like, this movie was fantastic. And for it to be set in 1984, 1985, mm. Mm. with the theme so good right now, like, yeah. this is themes anywhere. And it's why is it the Brits are getting these really great inclusive, whether it's sex education, whether it's heart stopper. <laughs> it was, I was bowled over. This movie was fantastic. And especially just because it's so poignant to me because we just went through a strike and people were singing the solidarity song. I've heard that song before. Yeah. And yeah. when the main character talks to at Mark Ashton, Oh, I have to show you there's this flag and it has two hands shaking. Mm. And that's what about, it's about solidarity. I it just, is. I highly recommend it. I'll put it, I'll tag it up. Like it's a great movie. Cause when you think pride, Oh, is this a, yeah, it is about pride parade, but exactly as Jesse much outlined more. it, much it more. was much more. And there were so yeah. many different characters. Like, yeah, like there's some big ticket people, but like, I'm thinking Andrew Scott, Dominic, Bill, Amelda signed on to this because this is a good project. And they believed in it. They and sp- in speaking it. of Amelda Staunton, she yeah. freaking stole the show every time she was on <laughs> the screen, whether it was telling off other minors, telling them yes. how homophobic they were, or like, I want to see all the gay men as they visit London and caroon through all the and different she's dancing, bars. And she's dancing, dancing to Bronsky beat. Oh my God, she's I loved it. it. And what's even great, it was just like, hey, I'm here. 
That's it. I'm That's here right. to support you. Yeah. She drives it. There's a lovely other character they call Bromley named Joe, who was just like a pastry chef, like a chef, but he was really yeah. finding his insight, becoming a photographer and taking a stand. And the one that I really liked was the Shan character. She was the oh, wife yes, of yes, one of the yes. gentlemen. Yeah. And she too. eventually returned to school. True story. Mm-hmm. She eventually be- returned to school in Wales, re- eventually became a member of parliament for Swansea, the first woman Amazing. ever for that constituency. Yeah. And it was just... This is 1984, 1985. It wasn't that long ago. No. They were respecting and bringing LGBTQ rights as they are rights. Let's not ignore. And these are minors. And they came out and supported. I don't want to spoil it, but I, I listeners, no, you got to watch this movie. I, I, without spoiling it for our listeners, yeah. Siggy, that final scene, right? Yes. It just, it had shivers for mm-hmm. me, just as a gay man who's gone to many numerous pride parades. Yeah. But to see that final scene just gave me shivers. And it just made me think, wow, it, it made me believe in humanity. And it made me believe that anything is possible when we link up with each other and any differences that you thought you've had with someone that is different from you, you soon realize that they're just perpetuated differences by the common foe that we all have, which I think Mm -hmm. more than just the employer, it's really capitalism as far as I'm concerned. And in the case of this movie, (laughs) capitalism really flowed through Margaret Thatcher as a leader and her policies around Thatcherism. And you Mm -hmm. saw it leak into the police as well as the conservative press. And -hmm. that's what I loved about all of this was both sides realizing these are the actual people that are bullying them both and they That's wanted right. to stand up and things weren't perfect right like no 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 perfect for the miners because this was based on real events that occurred and if you have any understanding about that you'll know that the miners didn't really do well during this long oh, and no. heated strike but it was just incredible in this film to find people having discoveries that they have common struggles, common humanities, and that both sides realizing these commonalities. You know, what Mm -hmm. I loved was then comedy ensued. And sometimes you got some of the best one-liners from all of this. And so it was like a double fish out of water story, the miners being exposed to gay lesbian activists and the gay lesbian activists being challenged and being surprised when they have finding out that they have more in common with these miners than other parts of greater London society. Sig, speaking of this common humanity, you would think a common humanity, especially amongst all the Filipinos in the diaspora, has to do with the fact that we all live in the diaspora as opposed to living in the Philippines, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and you think that we would have solidarity with other Filipinos, but I know that you and I have talked outside of the podcast, just sometimes recognizing that isn't always the case. And Mm -hmm. what you and I have been saying, at least in season five and parts of season four, is how wherever you're located in the diaspora, your expression of being Filipino is really different sometimes Mm -hmm. or can be different. And so when we meet our friends from Filipinos of Montreal or we meet other Filipinos within the southwestern Ontario GTA region or we meet Filipinos in Manitoba, (laughs) we all share the same stuff. We all have that same, if you will, common humanity, but there's just something a little bit different. And then I was thinking about this and I wanted to get your opinion on it is this is that I think being a Filipino in the diaspora at the end of the day is shaped by whoever your host country might be. So mm-hmm. whether it's Canada, Canada yeah. United States, and even though you think geographically we're the same, I know that you, when you and I have met Filipinos from Queens, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, in New York City or Californian Filipinos, they feel very different 
from ourselves in some ways. Again, we share traditions, but their expression yes. is very different. I also think too, and those host countries can also be places like Saudi Arabia, Singapore, Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And I know that there are big populations of Filipinos in those areas. And in fact, when we look up our stats for this podcast, we see the world light up where there are Filipino contingencies or Filipino populations. So we know yes. that the host country shapes your expression of being Filipino. Something that I'm also well aware of is the sentiments and feelings that people in the host country, you mm-hmm. know, I think also shape it. So how people think of us as being Filipino. And then I think most importantly, and I know you and I have had many conversations oh, yes. about this is when you emigrated, when you emigrated really determines also what kind of Filipino you are. So you could have emigrated here in Ontario or in New York City, where I'm situated right now today, mm-hmm. and someone else 30 years can immigrate, but may not be the same type of, if you will, Filipino in the diaspora. Exactly. Be- because of when they emigrated. I wanted to get your thoughts about that. Like that, you know, my budding hypothesis there is, is, is that although we are all Filipinos in the diaspora, we're still shaped by our host country, the people in the host country and what they think of us. And when you immigrated, whether it was in the 70s, the 60s, the 90s, the 2000s, wherever the case may be. It is so true. And we've talked about this before, and this is very poignant. We're in season six. One of our first conversations that you and I had about being Filipino happened when I was either 23 or 24. We were in the car, and I asked a very simple question. And so when I was 23, 24, I'm just out of high school for about five, six years if that, bad math, but I just said, Jesse, you know what? Filipino kids when I was in high school versus the Filipino kids that are in high school now, and that was when I was 23, so let's say for argument's sake in 2000, I go, they're very different. Mm -hmm. And I was talking out loud, and I had this perplexed look. I described my experience as my parents immigrated in the 70s, like my good peers in that group, Mm -hmm. and we were born in Canada, Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. No, actually, no. Denise and Annalie, I think we were born in the Philippines, but immigrated very young. Right. And we were great students. We did all these things. We were part of the community. We did good stuff. We ate Filipino food. Just good kids. We were part of the Filipino Canadian Association just because our parents were in it. And then when I met the newer kids, and I say this kids loosely, the newer teens that were in high school, they just seemed different. Right. They didn't seem to be too much into how we were, and I for the model minority, I'm going to use that as our, the term that we sort of fit into, straight-A students mm-hmm. and stuff. It just seemed a little different. And I didn't know, and I was very puzzled, and I was poking that with you, and I'm like, oh, am I missing something? Why are they different? And you looked at me, and you're like, do you know why? I'm like, I really don't. You're like, well... Their parents have a different immigration story. Their immigration story is very different. They could have immigrated at age 12. And their parents were already in Canada. And it was shaped like, okay, they've been in Canada already. They're being brought over here. They could have been an OFW that worked in Canada. And, oh, finally, you brought me over. And you really gave me insight where I was like, oh, Oh, okay. Just because they're in St. Catharines, Ontario, and Filipino, they're part of diaspora, but their immigration story is very different than mine. And that's only a couple of years difference. And it really lit up. That's why I was like, oh, that's exactly what you're talking about, right? Canada. And what year was that? That was in the so 90s. Let's, let's say late 90s. Well, because it had to be when we just first met each other and just we happened to be talking. So let's say for argument's sake, let's say it's 2000, like a flat 2000, because I made that conversation where I was like, Kuya, I noticed this. And it yeah. was one of those things where 
usually when we're with our friends, we're talking light and fun and we talk about serious stuff, but yeah, it just happened yeah. to be you and me in a car and you really were thoughtful with me. You're like, do you know why? And I'm like, I don't know why. Can you explain it? Yeah. And I think it was a product of the shift in immigration policies in the nineties, if I understand yeah. correctly. And so at some point, Canada had stopped or really tried to deter immigration from the Philippines coming in after they had gotten all the nurses and uh, healthcare professionals that they needed. Right. So thank you very much. We're not going to have any more of you, but there were still people wanting to come from the Philippines to Canada. Right. And so they changed up sponsorship ideas at that point. And I think one of the few places left to kind of get through was through the domestic worker program at that yes, time. And exactly so there was a change in 1990s. And I remember telling you this and saying that, so think about that institutional policy change occurring in the 1990s. And then under the auspices of those particular policies that were being put forth by the government of the day at the time, did it affect the character of those individuals? And mm. I think it did, right? I think it did because I don't think we just see it there. Like we, we didn't just see it in St. Catharines, Ontario. Like mm. I've seen it in Toronto where I see, depending on when people immigrated, they feel either inferior or not inferior. And in fact, yeah. to other Filipinos who may have immigrated at a different time when maybe there was much more permissiveness or much more happiness and, and a better reception for Filipinos coming into Canada from the Philippines. And then you can kind of see it in the way that they interact with those other Filipinos. And I see it when people interact with me, that mm -hmm. people either feel really shy or meek, right? Or mm -hmm. angry, because it's kind of like you came in at a time that was easier, you know, to come into this country. And I don't blame them, right? Like, I don't, I don't yeah. blame them, right? In, in a lot of ways. It's funny how it's evolved to now, as now that I'm like 47, I have a family, I have kids, and my interactions have, have sort of shifted in the sense where I am so much more curious. Yeah. Because someone would ask me, and like, we had a, it was just, I took Delaney to a dentist appointment, and the dental hygienist, I thought she knew I was Filipino, I'd see mm. her, mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh, hi, how are you? And we're just, we were just chatting, she's like, I, you're Filipino. And I'm like, yeah, I think I told you last time. And I sort of had a smile on my face. I'm like, how are you doing? And we just chatted and stuff like that. And she said, um, where are you from? I'm like, well, actually, yeah, I, I lived in St. Catharines. My parents came in. Oh, and she wanted to know my immigration story. She goes, that's right. I came when I was 13. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And yeah. I was just like, so do you live in Ottawa? Like what brought to Ottawa? She's like, family was here. Right. And it's funny because I think she was trying to not size me up or understand my experience because she said, you haven't been to the Philippines yet? You're 47 years old. And I'm like, no, I hadn't. And I told her like, oh, you know, th these were the times that we were supposed to go. And I should have. My parents are getting older. And she's like, and in a sense, if you had a younger version of me, I'd be sort of mad. But I wasn't because she's trying to make sense and make a connection. Right. And I was like, and I was like yeah. And she's like, you need to go. She, Delaney would love it. And we were just chatting about it. And I think I find myself more like seeking out the Filipino versus right. Before, if we were growing up, that, oh, I have these privileges and they don't. It wasn't that. I, I think I want to know where people are coming from. And it still continues on, right? Because some people are like, oh, I thought you were mixed. I'm like, oh, no, you know, I'm Filipino through and through. And it's just finding those other little pockets, just trying to understand. And I don't want my kids to feel that we're separated. We're united by being Filipino. And I know you're going to talk a little bit more about that. I just... I take those lessons because I don't, I want my kids to understand and celebrate it. 
I think that some people sometimes will ask those questions of like, where are you Mm -hmm. from? Or, you know, have you been to the Philippines? Mm -hmm. That these are ways of understanding that indeed you're Filipino. But as we've talked Mm -hmm. about on this podcast, you don't necessarily have to have gone to the Philippines to say that you're necessarily Filipino as having a Filipino identity. I don't mean it in a political identity sort where Mm -hmm. the state of the Philippines recognizes Siggy or Jazz as being Filipino. Although I will say... When I was going through before the pandemic through customs, the customs officer from the Philippines was very adamant, although I had a Canadian passport, was like, but you're Filipino. And I said, (laughs) I am Filipino identity-wise, but from a nationality perspective, of course not. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting, (laughs) kind of like this idea of claiming. I think it's always interesting, like when you tell me of these situations where people struggle to kind of figure it out. But I think you're right in just being curious instead of feeling insulted, right? Like people are just trying yeah. to figure out how do they intersect with you in terms of our, as I've said at the beginning of this culture capital part of our podcast, common humanity, in this case, right. share tradition of being a Filipino. So some of it is through the immigration story. Some of it is in the food that we eat. And some of it is like mm-hmm. what you've seen. But I think it's interesting that, again, the host country when they immigrated, divides us, right? Like I met you and yeah. I was like, oh, of course, like Siggy is born here. He's in the same cohort as me. I understand his immigration experience. I understand exactly. that his immigration story is is owed in due part to your parents and stuff like that. And you right. hear my immigration story and it's the same thing. But I think when you are in a cluster of people, you know, that don't know, let's say our immigration story, they have trouble finding us sometimes in all of that. And I think it's always important for us to kind of respond the way that you respond more with curiosity and being okay with, with sharing it. Sometimes it gets a bit tiring, but you know, (laughs) important to share it. I know some Filipinos, but the listeners don't know is, is the reason why I'm in New York is, is it's partly a vacation from my uh, professional development conference that I went to in Denver (laughs) and the people that were serving me, my Starbucks were Filipino. And I, you know, I started saying, right. And they were just kind of shocked. Right. And they're like, they were happy to look at me and they said to me, Oh, we thought you were Latino. I guess as I get older, (laughs) perhaps maybe that's what I look like. And there's probably some type of common ancestry with Mexicans considering Spanish colonialism and the law of the Indies in Cancun. If you don't know what the law of the Indies are, I would suggest that you check that out. Look it up. (laughs) Look it up and, and do a bit of personal research on that. But nevertheless, it was just interesting that they were they were more likely to say, I'm not Filipino as a way of discounting me. Not that I think that they purposely did that, no, you know, as, no, no, no. as opposed to being curious as to why does this guy, why is this person speaking Tagalog to me, Tagalog. right? <laughs> yeah. And it was interesting because his name tag had his name and underneath it said Philippines and all the workers in that particular Starbucks had exactly <laughs> that, right? Like this one woman was yeah. from like Brooklyn, New York. Yeah. But let me tell you, she does not look look like what some might consider a Brooklyn, New York person, whatever that actually looks like, who even knows really. But at the end of the day, I think he had assumed this is the immigration story. And again, I think people's sentiments shape our identities and the host country shapes the identity and kind of what you were talking about with some of those other Filipinos that came into the region when they came into this country also shapes their identity. I think the other thing that shapes our identity too is when the Philippine state labels our experience, you know, in the diaspora. Quite often Mm -hmm. we 
see it as Balik Bayan and OFW. And these days, it's like, I think your parents would be called Balik Bayan. My parents would be called Balik Bayan. I don't know that they would call me Balik Bayan. And in fact, I don't know that they necessarily have a word for me. Mm-hmm. And then huh. people that you know, go away, be domestic workers to make money, but ultimately come back to the Philippines are known as OFWs, overseas Filipino workers. And most of these places these days, these host countries, interestingly enough, close up a path to citizenship. And in fact, there are less and less uh, host countries that are actually Mm. saying that there's a path to citizenship. So hence, you've kind of seen the rise of OFWs. There was a time when you could be a domestic worker, but be seen as yeah. a Balik Bayan because you were going to actually settle in that host country at the end of the day, That's right. even though providing remittances. So I just think to myself then, like, you know, you and I kind of get lost. And maybe perhaps that's why that Filipino customs officer who sees in my Canadian passport yeah. that I'm born in Manila was really insistent on calling me Filipino, that I'm a true right. Filipino at the end of the day, which was both amusing and yet at the same time puzzling in terms of how he was thinking about it. I think to myself, perhaps this is the way that he was thinking about it, that I don't fit nicely in the Balak Bayan category or the OFW. In his sense. That's right. Like in his perception. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, I think he needed to say I'm Filipino so you can put me in the Balak Bayan, but I clearly right. wasn't an OFW. I think closer to home, we, amongst the diaspora, we start dividing ourselves. And so, in as much as you and our, you know, our parents, we might call Balak Bayan. I think the greater Filipino community might just say like they're the original immigrants to this country and that you and I mm-hmm. would probably make up first and second generation yeah. Filipino Canadians. Yeah, for sure. So I think for me, like when I think about all of these imposed labels upon us, it serves to just separate us at the end of the day. And the idea is, is that sometimes I see this is, is, is that some of these groups think that they're better than others, right? Which kind of saddens me. And mm-hmm, and I will too. just say to the listeners, like there was a time that perhaps I thought that, right? But I'm, you know, as I study some of these, you know, contexts <laughs> as to what shapes people's identity and how they express being Filipino, I can see how other people judge others. It's like the myth of meritocracy. I don't know if you know anything about that. Tell thing. us. It's this idea that if you get to the top, you actually think that you're the best. And when really there might have actually been a number of, if you will, help and assistance that got you to the top. And then Mm -hmm. we forget the other people that need the same assistance. So we don't end up not helping them, you know? Right. And then they end up having this kind of kanya-kanya attitude. And it's like, wait a minute. Kanya. No, 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 no. Like, let's just leave the door open for them too. That's right. You know, there, there's room for them. And at some point I got to retire, Sigs, just like you, right? So someone's got to oh, exactly. Over, right? Exactly, so, yeah. So I do think that sometimes all of this separation and these unintended labels, they tend to not only separate us, but they make us judge each other. And, you know, when really these labels are just a product of national and transnational policies. And, you know, the result really again, just to reiterate this is separate us and leaves us, you know, judging one another or believing that, Mm -hmm. you know, one is better than the other. And all of that things I find so problematic. I I don't know if you, you concur with some of what my observations have been. No, I agree with your observations. And even that sense when we had that conversation, I was speaking from a a place of privilege that I got to have my parents. I was with them. I got to grow up with them and I got to, you know, learn from them. And 
Uh, you know, not that it was perfect or better than the other situations from people that came in, but it was with learning. And it's horrible that it does separate us. But really, I feel like and this is our mission for our podcast and our brand, our brand and quotation marks is we want to uplift each other right. and others. And this is like a road to like discovery and being more curious and understanding. And I like to have that separation. I have like, no doubt. Six. Gonna, yeah. You know? Uh, yeah. And I have no doubt that if my parents had immigrated in the 80s. I would not have accomplished what I've accomplished. And I would not think about the way I think about myself and others if it wasn't (laughs) for the fact that we entered in earlier rather than later. That's true. That's privilege. That's the privilege that we have is is that, you know, we got, our parents got to immigrate during a time when the reception to us didn't leave us in spots of carrying labor that didn't really get valued in some ways. The ironic part is, is is I do caring labor for my, my work, but, but nevertheless, (laughs) nevertheless, nevertheless, I just think to myself, I know that if I immigrated at a different time, I would not have the same opportunities. I would be thinking really differently at this point. And I might be inadvertently judging people harshly or judging Mm -hmm. them without actually getting to know them. So I think kind of where I want to see us end off is is Mm -hmm. that, especially in how what we're talking about today, classism, you know, in the Filipino diaspora. And again, that's been imposed by national or transnational policies and different host countries and what they think of, you know, the Filipino people is, is that instead of relying on others to tell us about ourselves, right, and our common culture, I think we actually find more power in seeing our common culture uh, and those shared traditions rather than judging each other and wondering who is better. And I think right. your idea of being curious is one way to do that. I think that there are many different ways to do that. So, you know, seeing that common culture, you know, how can we relate? Which again, I think that's what the dental assistant was doing, or that's what my Starbucks baristas were doing, was trying to figure out how they can relate to being Filipino with us. And yeah. I also want to say too, that knowing that the dominant culture that we live in wants us to struggle and fight amongst ourselves so that mm. we're not organized against them. I think it's actually better to be in solidarity with other Filipinos instead of just squabbling for scraps at the end of the day. So that's kind of the meditation that I would want our listeners to end with for today's episode. I don't know if you have any remaining thoughts on that, Six. I like that when we uh, we start off the season, we start off with something strong. And mm-hmm. I think we've just given a lot of tidbits to think about. And even as we discuss, I'm like... Ooh, this is a lot of things to think about. And I, I'm glad that we're starting off our season six with that type of uh, discussion. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Sigs, I think that takes us to the end. So take us out. We love email. We want to hear what you think about our podcast. Email us at holoholopopculture at gmail.com. The Holo Holo Podcast is available on all podcast platforms. Please rate us, leave a review. We see all the downloads all over, all over the country, all over the world. So please spread the word. Follow us rate us and you can follow us on social media we stand on instagram at hollow hollow pop finally we receive editorial feedback from mary beth badian our musical theme is by chel turingen we'll see all of you again real soon see you guys soon happy fall